Our text this morning is the first 19 verses of 2 Kings 5. Hear now the very word of the Lord. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. It is authoritative. 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she was working in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the king from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he said to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Wash. Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, 
For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ryman to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ryman, when I bow myself in the house of Ryman, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use this word to build us up in the Lord Jesus Christ, to show us your truth, to show us your majesty. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Those who know me well know that I am not a man who favors roller coasters. If we go to an amusement park, that's my wife's job. She is to go and to take the children or friends or anyone else on a roller coaster. I don't like them at all. Haven't since I was a kid. And I think in the main it's because, at least for me, when I'm on a roller coaster, I feel completely out of control. There's nothing that I can do except hold on. I can't direct where the car's going, how fast it will go, or how deep the dips will be. Now, you may be sitting there and say, I love roller coasters. But maybe what you don't like are academic examinations because you can't control those. You can't control what's on the test or how much sleep you will get the night before or whether the room will be quiet. Or maybe you seek to keep your home as neat as possible because when things are out and about, they're again out of your control. If we're honest with ourselves, from the smallest of us to the largest of us, we don't like being out of control. And that's one thing that I think is scary about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, the gospel does not allow us to be in control, to set the agenda, to have it the way we want it. We simply need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and hold on. What we're going to see this morning is a story of that in action. What it's like to watch those who are willing to give up control to the Lord God, to acknowledge that He is the one who is in control and sovereign. And we will see similarly... What happens to those who desire to keep control to themselves and how it affects their view of the Lord God? What I'd like us to see then this morning is the Lord working in His gospel in three types of ways. The first are God's sovereign ways. God's sovereign ways. Secondly, then, we'll see that God's ways are not only sovereign, but that they are unexpected. God's unexpected ways. And then as we talk about the gospel, we know that God is not only sovereign, He's not only in control, He's not only unexpected, but His ways transform. God's transforming ways. His sovereign ways, His unexpected ways, and His transforming ways. Let's look then at the beginning of our text in chapter 5. We see that God's ways are sovereign first in Syria. And if we stop and think about that for a minute, just even that statement is a bit shocking. 
God is not just sovereign in Israel, in His land, in His kingdom, among His people, but He is sovereign throughout the earth. And what better place to see that than in Syria, an enemy of Israel, a place where there are many gods, false gods. And we see God's sovereignty as we first meet this man by the name of Naaman. Naaman is a powerful man. He is a glorious man. The scripture says that he is a great man. This wonderfully rich Hebrew phrase, Ishail, it's used to describe other men in the Bible. Men of stature, men of wealth, men of depth of character. It describes Boaz, for example. He is a great man. He is great and powerful with the king of Syria, an even more powerful man in that part of the world. He is the commander of the army. He is in favor with the king. You could almost hear the majestic background music as Naaman comes across the scenery. But there is something that is not quite right in the story here. There's a chink in the armor. There's a spot, literally, on the scene. And that is that for all Naaman's greatness, the Bible says, but he was a leper. And the text almost lands like a thud in front of us. Naaman, the leper. One bad thing spoiling an otherwise perhaps perfect life. Have you ever experienced that? The Lord has showered out His blessings upon you, but there is one thing that is the fly in the ointment. One thing that makes it very difficult, if not impossible, to enjoy the sweetness of God's blessings. That was Naaman's life every day that he woke up and looked in the mirror. But the interesting thing is, is that it doesn't, it's not the most significant thing in the text. Because Naaman is a great man, and we're surprised that he's a leper, but there's something else that's even more striking. Look here at verse 1. Naaman is a great man in favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Does that seem odd to you? That God would grant victory to this pagan army commander? Perhaps it'll seem even more odd when you think about who was Syria's enemy. It was the kingdom of Israel. And Naaman was great in stature because God was in charge of his life. God had given victory. The word here is the same word for deliverance or salvation. God had preserved Syria in battle through Naaman. We easily see here that God is in control of the big things. Kings, armies, battles, nations. God is sovereign. He's sovereign where we expect Him to be in the things that are, in, that are important. But He's not just sovereign in the things that are big and seem important. He's also sovereign in the little things, as we see in a contrast in verse 2. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. She just happens to be in the right place at the right time, happens to be helping Mrs. Naaman, and they're sitting, I don't know, they could be sewing or preparing a meal or cleaning the house, and she just expresses this wish, would that my Lord could be with the prophet in Samaria. 
Now think about that. This little girl is in this big place at this big time. And look at the contrast. He is a great man. She is a little girl. He is a commander of the army. She is a woman's servant. She is on the bottom of the bottom of the totem pole. She is a child who is female and is a slave. You don't get any lower on the social totem pole than that. And yet God is in control. He puts her in this place at this time. And I want you to notice something. She's not here by her free will. She has been carried off on a raid. And yet her thought here is to be helpful to her captives. To her captors, excuse me. Do you see that? She could very easily be bitter. She could very easily want to have the last thing that she would do would be to help. But yet, here, like so many other of God's people in the Scriptures, like Daniel, like Ezra, like Mordecai, like Nehemiah, those who are captive seek to bring the blessing of God upon their captors. They seek to be a source of light and love and truth and goodness. Not bitterness and hate. I think that's something for us to remember as we live in a world that is difficult and causes challenges to us. And I think, just as a quick aside here, there is an immediate application to parents. This little girl is off far away from her parents, but she is able to use the wisdom that her parents have given to her in a different situation. No doubt her parents had told her stories of Elisha, told her the word of God and how the, Elisha was the man of God. They had prepared her to be a godly woman. And even though they were not in God's providence, given the opportunity to finish the task, the work that they had begun bears fruit right here. Because in typical God fashion, it's the little things that have big effects. You see, Naaman is a great man in a great nation with a great king, but it's only the little girl that can save him. It's only this little girl that can bring the blessing of God to this place. You see, the king of Syria, he still doesn't believe in little things because his response is to send off a letter to another king. He skips over the whole bit about the prophet. He says, well, the king of Israel, he must be the one that has the answer. What this story shows to us, kids, is that you make a difference in the kingdom of God. One little girl is going to change history. She is going to bring God's grace internationally to Syria. One little girl makes a huge difference. Next time you are tempted, whether you're a small child or a big adult, to think you don't matter in the scope of things, that you don't have the the capabilities, you don't have the giftings to make big things happen, remember this little nameless girl. There's one other thing I want you to think about about this girl before we leave her. And that is that she is going to bring about great things. God is going to work great things through her, but I want you to see the incredible cost of those great things. 
You see, it is true God's grace is about to go international. Naaman is about to meet the prophet of God. Syria is about to hear the gospel. But it only happens because an army raids and destroys a village, perhaps kills her parents, sweeps her off to where she will never see loved ones again. There will be no milk carton with a picture on it. There will be no, have you seen me, so that I can be recovered. The life of the family of this girl has suffered unbelievable cost. In God's economy, in God's providence, we need to step back and see what he's doing. But if you were this little girl's uncle, you would tend to focus only on the pain, only on the suffering. You see, the kingdom of God does not always come easy. It often comes at very great cost, as this little girl can attest to. God is sovereign here in the midst of the kingdom of Syria, but he's also sovereign in the kingdom of Israel. Because Naaman goes off to find this prophet of God. And he goes off with all of the right tools. He takes to himself a king's ransom, literally, for a cure. I'll do the conversion math for you. He takes 750 pounds of silver and 200 pounds of gold. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the number of animals that would be needed just to transport that? And he takes 10 changes of clothing. Now that is not 10 pairs of new sweatpants. That's 10 pairs of the finest clothing that you can find, of the finest linen, probably with jewels and gold and silver woven in. That alone would be a king's ransom. And see, so he goes off with this unbelievable amount of wealth. And the king of Israel is literally shaking in his boots. And so we see another contrast here, not just between the great Naaman and the little girl, but between the faithful girl and the faithless king. Because you see, this little girl is expecting of God's work. She says, you just need to go see the prophet. He'll cure you. She's optimistic. She trusts in God's goodness, even in the midst of her difficulties. And what of the king of Israel? He certainly is living a greater life of ease than she is. He certainly has more control and power than she does. But his response is to merely think like a king. He says, what's the angle here that they're working? What are they doing? They're here to come destroy me. They're, this is a war incident. He can't see the pain of a commander of the army of Israel of Syria. He can't see the faith of a little girl expecting God to work. No, to him, this is all about tricks and politics. And look at something else that comes from him. This little girl has faith, and it leads her to speak up and to give advice, to stick her neck out, as it were. To push on to action. This king, it's likely Jehoram, he does not have faith. And it leads to inaction. He doesn't want anything to do with this. He wants to crawl into a hole and get away from this. 
He is a walking, breathing example of how a lack of faith leads to inaction. You see, our society wants you to think sometimes that if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't do anything. You just sit and wait for God to act. When in reality, the opposite is true. If you don't have faith in God, you have nothing to look forward to. You sit and wait for things to happen to you. And so Naaman comes seeking this cure, seeking the God who can cure him. And this king, he has no hope at all. Look in verse 7. He reads the letter and he says, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to cure me of leprosy? Now, that should sound familiar. Kill, make alive. He's saying it like, this could never happen. Come on. When we know, just a few verses back in chapter 4, God has done exactly that with the Shunammite boy. Right? She's born. He's born to that Shunammite woman. God kills and then he makes alive. But this king has no hope that this would happen. He has no hope and he is not seeking God. Are you seeking God today? Do you notice what seeking God looks like? Seeking God looks like responding to God when he seeks you. God brings that little girl to Mrs. Naaman. God brings Naaman to the king. God is in complete control of this situation. But the king of Israel has his head in the sand. As a matter of fact, Elisha has to be the one who takes the initiative. He hears the story and he says, why are you ripping your clothes up? This isn't crying time. You could almost see him. There's no crying in prophecy. Stop it. Oh, you don't know what to do? Send him over to my house. Now, you can imagine the king really wants to get rid of Naaman and he's afraid because he sends him off to Elisha's house. Now, imagine this. Naaman comes in with his horses and his chariots and his servants. The scripture tells us this. And his 750 pounds of silver and his 200 pounds of gold and these long flowing robes. And where does he go? He goes to the seedy end of town to go see Elisha in his hut with his one servant. Because we know Elisha is not the king's favorite man. He does not live in the palace. And you can almost imagine Naaman as he's traveling. Did we take a right turn here? This isn't the kind of place I expected. We're not in the right part of town, are we? You can imagine the neighbors poking their heads out. Who is that? What's with the whole army there? This is a shocking scene. Naaman comes in, and he comes to see Elisha, a man whose fame has spread to the lowest social level of Syria. A little girl in Syria hears about him and knows him. And he comes face to face with Elisha and Elisha's God. And so we see that God is not only sovereign, but now we see that God acts in unexpected ways, beginning in verse 9. 
So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. He comes, and the arrival is full of pomp and circumstance. You can almost imagine he's got his own personal musicians that come with him. He has His entourage has an entourage. And he comes in, and he's in Elisha's neighborhood. And he's all ready to hear what this great man of God, that little girl has talked about, who's going to cure him, will do. And look at what happens. Elisha, verse 10, sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Wash and be clean. Now, imagine that. Naaman, with all the color and the pomp and the circumstance, and he's in the seedy part of town, and he doesn't know what to do, and someone walks up and he says, Are you the prophet of God? He says, No, I'm his servant. He wants you to go wash in the river. And he walks away. What? This man in this bad part of town that I don't even know, and who is it, the king, sends a servant out to me, Naaman, the great commander of the army of Syria? Does he know who I am? Does he know what I'm bringing? What is going on here? It goes and it cuts against everything that Naaman thinks in terms of the way the world works. The way the world works is you lift yourself up as high as you can, you puff your chest out as far as you can, you bring as much money and power as you can, and people fawn all over you. And they give you things. And then you show how wonderful you are by giving back. You see, Naaman's view, not just of society, but of the way gods worked in Syria, was that the gods were a gigantic vending machine. How much you needed depended on how big the gold bar you shoved in the vending machine. You give, God gives you what you want. That's the way idols worked in Syria. And he can't understand what's going on here. He is absolutely furious. We miss it just a little bit in the text, but let me give you a little bit of emphasis here. Naaman was angry and he went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand all over the place and cure the leper. The Hebrew actually says, Behold, I said to me he would come and stand, and wave his hand, and cure me. Naaman is saying, I'm the one that's important here. Doesn't Elisha realize that? Doesn't God realize that? What a wonderful opportunity he has here to deal and treat with me. I can give. Look at the silver. Look at the gold. Now, lest we in our ability to disassociate ourselves from the text, think, well, that was how Syrians worked. They're pagans. They, they had that kind of a view of God. All you need to do is, this week, turn on your television to any number of channels, and you will see supposed ministers of the gospel stand up and say, if you only give to me, I will see that God gives to you. And if they're really good prophets of God, if you give to me once, God will give to you ten times. 
That's how God's grace works. A big vending machine. You see, we could be tempted to that. Lest we think that it's just televangelists. Don't we often view that in our own lives? God, if you will just let me break through to my kids, I will read my Bible all day long for a month. Lord, if you will just fix my marriage, I will never stop praying ever. But you see, that's not how God works. His ways are unexpected. They cut against our pride. They don't give us opportunity to show how great we are and how deserving we are. God's ways are like Elisha sending a servant and giving a command that is so simple. Because you see, God's ways are unexpected, not only in that they cut against our pride, but that they cut against our sense of wisdom, our worldly wisdom. God's ways are so foolish here. The servant comes out, and if it isn't bad enough that Naaman has to talk to a servant, the servant says, you see that muddy, trickling brook over there that we call the River Jordan? Go rinse in it seven times, and you'll be clean. And Naaman's response is, wait a minute. I have rivers at home. Wait a minute. I have better rivers at home. The rivers at home, these two rivers that I mentioned, they're large, flowing rivers. They have clean, crisp water coming right from the snow of the mountains. Why wouldn't I wash there? What kind of foolish request is this? If you were really going to cure me, wouldn't you come out and make a big deal? Come on, wave your arms, puffs of smoke, touch the leprosy. Let's see it, whiz-bang. He can't understand why it's so simple. And isn't that sometimes the way we, and all the time the way the world views the gospel? Well, how can it be so simple? You mean I could be a different person just by believing in Jesus? You mean everything about me can change just by what I believe? Oh, no, really. I need to, like, balance a plate on my head for a week. Or I need to sell my car and ride a scooter around for the next year. Or I need to memorize 45 pages of material. Or I need to, or I need to, surely. But that's not the way the gospel is. You see, we might say the only thing that might be more foolish than saying, go dip in a water, would be saying, go believe. You see, God's ways are unexpected. They cut against our worldly wisdom. This is what Paul said at Corinth. He said, you know, these Greeks, they know all this philosophy. And these Jews, they, they like all of these signs and wonders. But you know, what we do is we preach Christ and Him crucified. That's what changes lives. It's not what people expect, but it's what we do. And you see, God's ways are unexpected in this sense because God's ways are for His glory, not ours. Naaman has to be humbled here. He has to see that he is the one who's being ridiculous. And his servants come up and tell him that. They basically say, Lord, if he would have told you to do something really hard, you would have done it, wouldn't you? Well, yeah. 
So when he tells you to do something easy, why don't you do it? You came all this way. You believed that you could be healed. Go dip in the water. He has to be shown how ridiculous his pomp, his pride, his self-worth is. And the irony here is, it continues the story. The kings are clueless. Naaman, the powerful man, doesn't know what's going on. Who knows what's going on in this story? It's the servants. It's the kids. They know what's going on. Naaman listens. And he goes into the water, a leprous Syrian. And he comes out, a clean Israelite. How does he do that? He does it, as we look at this third way that God works now, he does it because of God's transforming ways. He comes out first as a transformed person. Look at verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. He stood before him as a man whose flesh had been restored. He comes out of this river not just a clean man, but a new man. He has been transformed. And we see it in the way that he speaks. Now we've already, with some flourish, talked about the type of man that Naaman was, right? The horses, the chariots, the clothes, the servants, the soldiers. Now look what happens when he comes out of the river. Behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. Because he said, as the, but, and he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer any burnt offering or sacrifice. In this manner, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house... Your servant in this manner, verse 18. Five times in three verses, he says to Elisha, I am your servant. God has not just wiped the leprosy off this man. He's wiped the pride off this man. He's made him a different man. He is changed and it shows in his bearing and in his attitude question comes to you. Has the Lord changed your life? Has He changed your life so much that your language is different? That the way you dress is different? That the way you relate to people is different? Has the Lord changed you such that others look upon you and actually see a change? Like in Naaman. He is a changed, transformed man. And it doesn't just come out in humility. It comes out in this great confession. Look at verse 15. Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Would, to borrow a phrase from the little girl, would that almost anyone in Israel would say that. Would that the king of Israel would say that. What a profession of faith. No God, but the Lord. This is something that King Ahaziah in 2 Kings 1 couldn't say. He went bail shopping. 
to find his cure. This is something that the court of the king Jehoram can't say. They're too busy jockeying for position around the golden calves. This is something that shames the visible people of God. Lest we think this is just something that happens in Syria, it reminds us of another incident in Luke chapter 4. When our Lord told this story, and He said, There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And you know what their reaction was? When they heard these things, they were filled with wrath and they tried to kill him. Because they knew what Jesus had said was, the people of God were pretending. And only Naaman was cured because only Naaman sought God. And God bypassed the pretend people of God. Because a show is not what God wants. He goes right past it to reality. That's what God has done throughout the ages in the church as well, where the church pretends to follow God and does not follow His Word, does not have true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and God bypasses them because He wants transformed people, not church people. He wants people whose lives are transformed as well because Naaman is marked by a transformed life. Look at what he does. Verse 17. He wants to take two mule loads of earth to go and to offer sacrifices. He is resolved now to lead a different life. Now, these couple of statements by Naaman are sometimes, I think, hard for us to understand. Why does he want to take the dirt? And what's with the forgive me if I go in the temple of the pagan god? Let's take them one at a time. You have to understand he wants the earth because he is setting up an outpost to Jehovah in Syria where there is no other worship. You see, there's a very real sense that John 4 doesn't apply yet. There is a temple in Jerusalem. The people are called to come into Israel. The church is not going out to all the nations yet. This is a glimpse of grace going international. And so what... Naaman says is, I want to set up an outpost of the true living God in my nation. I want to set up a place where I can worship and offer sacrifice. I want to bring Israel to my house. Do you see that? There's a sense in which that's true for us even today. Although we can worship the Lord God anywhere, isn't there a sense in which we want to bring church to our workplace? Or to our homes? where relationships are good, where there is support, where there is joy, where there is the Word of God. We don't want to see that contained in the church. We want to see it brought to other areas of our life. And that's what Naaman is doing. Now he will only sacrifice to the Lord. Don't lose sight of this. Do you see how badly Naaman wants church? That should shame our generation. Naaman wants church and a connection with the people of God so bad that if he has to do it by bringing dirt, he will do it. And yet at our day and age, if a golf tournament 
or a project or a late night gets in the way. Well, the people of God can wait. Naaman has to have the people of God. And he's transformed so that he knows that his reality is different than everyone else's. He can't have corporate worship. There's nobody else. He is the church in Syria. Him, his dirt, and his altar he builds. And so he knows the reality that what's going to happen is his king is going to make him, by his job, go into the temple of Ryman. Now, I don't want you to lose the big deal about what's going on here. He has become so sensitized to this that he knows it's a big deal. And he wants to ask for forgiveness in advance. He can't see any other option now. Maybe six months from now there would be. But right now he knows he's been cured. He's the only worshiper of the true God. And he's the king's right-hand man, which is really what the text means when it says the king leans upon him. And he has to go where the king goes. But he's so sensitized to it that he says, I'm going to need God's forgiveness. Do you see how the transforming grace of God is now piercing his conscience? It's transforming his life. We're seeing baby steps in Naaman. So before you become critical of him and say, what a compromiser. And if only Elisha were a real pastor, he would give him what for and tell him, no way you can do that. The king cuts your head off, let the king cut your head off. No. Elisha knows that this great man of God is a baby in Christ. And he has no one to teach him. And he has no fellowship. And he has no support. And he knows it's going to take some time. He will be what he is not now. Is that your story? Is that your story when you meet other Christians? Do you want them to be what they're not now? Are you upset for them because they're not where they should be? Or are you coming alongside them to bring them to where they should be? That's what Elisha does. Don't lose the insight that Elisha says, go in peace, offering his blessing. What does all this mean, this story of this grand Syrian who comes in after meeting a little girl and is transformed by the power of the glorious grace of God? What it means to us is, is that God is not like other gods. His grace knows no boundaries. Not the physical boundaries of countries. Not possibility boundaries of what we think is possible. Not the boundaries of what we want nor the boundaries of how far we want to go. God's grace breaks through all of these boundaries. It is sovereign. He is in control. He fashions His people as He will. And He is in control of all the circumstances. Do you want your whole life changed now? If you do, you must see that Jesus is in control. That Jesus sets your agenda. That Jesus has the power to transform you today. May God be praised. Amen. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are our Lord and our King. And we pray this morning, O Lord, that You would teach us through this lesson that we should never grow complacent, but we should seek Your powerful grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that breaks through all boundaries and the love of our sovereign God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen.